Hey everyone, welcome back to Wrong Think. We're making some changes as we try to figure out the best format of bringing you urgent and interesting conversations every week. In the meantime, you can find Jeff Marr at his Substack, I Might Be Wrong, and I'll be in this space bringing you a series of conversations with people you may know or that I think you'd like to get to know. This week I'm talking to my friend and just all around incredibly dope person, Chloe Valdari, about social media cleanses, microdosing mushrooms, disorder in the subways, anti-racism versus genuine integration, and a lot more. I hope you enjoy it and let us know what you're thinking. And now here's Chloe. The way our left hemisphere perceives the world is as objects to be controlled and exploited and dominated, whereas the left, or excuse me, the, the right hemisphere sees the gestalt, essentially, mm. the wholeness of everything. And he argues that in a lot of Western civilization, the left hemisphere took over mm -hmm. our, our way of seeing and our way of being. And then this book by James Bridle, he argues about how we need to basically go back to that more or root the left hemisphere perception in a more holistic right hemisphere mm. perception. Okay. So you're, you're, <laughs> I like <Light> drop. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about that. You have this amazing routine where you do social media dieting every other day. Yeah. You do micro dosing every other day. Not every other day. One day on, two days off. Also for social media, oh, one day on, two days off. Oh, I see. It's yeah. two days off. I, yeah, I yeah, misunderstood yeah. that. Yeah. The two days is really important. So you can reset in the non-social media world, like fully immerse. That first the, day you're just kind of yeah. easing into it. Yeah. The buzz is still there from the dopamine. Uh, Although I have found over time... The social media buzz is still there from yeah. the dopamine. Yeah, even though I'm not on. Mm -hmm. But over time, I, that buzz actually decreases the longer that I do this diet. That's interesting because you and I have been in these dirty Twitter trenches for a while now. I met you on Twitter yeah. some years ago. And, you know, you write, you answer on Twitter, mm -hmm. you, you become a kind of reliable presence. And over years you gain followers. And then and then at some point you have you feel like it's a part of you to for be sure. somebody that, you know, regularly engages there. So you used to tweet a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but then I did notice, I don't know, like sometime during the pandemic or something, you made conscious decisions to take Twitter breaks and you would say, I'm, yeah. I'm out for a while. And then you would disappear and you didn't make that effort to constantly chase more and more followers mm -hmm. at some point, you know, because you were gaining uh, during the pandemic, people were putting on Even a thousand followers online. a yeah. week and stuff. And you, and you made a, you and like Aisha yeah. Akanbi made a, choice at some point to not just keep chasing that indefinitely, sure. but to take breaks. For sure. So in 2020, that was the year that my Twitter following actually started exponentially increasing. Mm -hmm. And I remember it was the summer of 2020, George Floyd, Black Lives Matter. And I started publishing pieces about Dr. King mm -hmm. in response mm -hmm. to everything that was happening. And that was when the uptick started. But also in 2020, that was the year I started meditating. Ah, and so uh -huh. these two things influenced each other. And the meditation practice that I have, as well as some of the other things we spoke about, influenced me to get really conscious about how I'm showing up online and also about not or about being very careful when my sense of identity or sense of self-worth becomes attached to whether it's a following on Twitter or whether it's something more simpler is like my ability to immediately respond in a very aggressive adversarial way. Mm -hmm. Like I, I'm very conscious and cautious of having my identity be wrapped up in that, which is why I take breaks. What was the turning point? Uh, because I feel like I've gone through similar yeah. experiences, but I've never actually brought myself to a true 
Twitter detox. Yeah. What was the thing that happened or you said or someone said to you that you were like, you know what? I don't need this. (laughs) 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 For me, it should have been when like uh, I was somehow being screamed at by Emily Ratajkowski and a few million people. Yeah, that (laughs) That should have been a time for me to just say, you know what? I don't need this, but I didn't do that. What, what, What was it for you? Well, I feel like this is also heavily influenced by my startup, which is Theory of Enchantment. And like my startup is a practice that I'm basically selling to people and corporations and schools and stuff. And the whole idea is to become more integrated as a human being so you can show up in the world and in your relationships and in your community in a way that's like more loving, basically. Mm -hmm. And like that will actually end up creating, you know, whether it's a more compassionate society more and actually anti-racist society, etc. So like the fact that my work entails building and selling a lot of that, I have to embody the practices and the principles that I'm promoting. And so I don't know if there was like a specific inflection point that caused me to say, you know what, I'm not going to do this or like specifically an inflection point on Twitter itself. Mm -hmm. But the first time I took a break from Twitter was last year. I went to Mexico for two weeks and I was just like off Twitter the entire time and Instagram. I was off all social media. And you're like, damn, this feels good. Yeah. <laughs> it was hard at first. Don't get me wrong. Uh-huh. But like I wanted to challenge myself to successfully complete it. And I'm also just an avid reader. And I don't say that to be obnoxious. I mean, the rate at which I read and the amount of books that I read is somewhat frightening. And a lot of the books that I was reading at the time were also about this, like, let's be conscious, let's mm. be integrated, etc. Mm-hmm. And so all these things were sort of talking to each other. And I think that's what ultimately led me to make this decision. And I, I know that you are on the Red Scare pod. I'm a huge fan of the Red Scare pod. It's like the only pod I listen to religiously. And they were talking shout about- Shout out to Anna and Dasha. Shout out to Anna and Dasha for being the best. Uh, They're so, really good at what they do. So yeah. good at what they do. But I was listening- or reading their tweets about Lent. And like, <laughs> <laughs> like how they wanted Dasha's to like... Catholicism. Yeah, exactly. And so I'm not Catholic, but I was like, you know, that's interesting. That's an interesting idea. And so this year I took off Twitter for all of Lent. I was oh, off Twitter. Okay. And so that was like an anchor for my now diet, which is one day on, two days off. So how long? It's only been for a few weeks that you've been like that then. For that diet, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, but it makes sense. It's kind of, yeah, it's nice. You don't have to do like a complete uh, leaving right. everything that you built up, but right. you don't have to be a slave to it either. Exactly. Yeah. Because sometimes I feel like a, I, sometimes I wake up in the morning and I've got the phone in my face no, and like, Thomas. and then I'm reading notifications. I'm like, this is in control of that, me. That you know, like why? Dopamine. Yeah. It's like, I'm, why am I waking up that way? Usually I just try to wake up, put Michael Barbaro on the daily, <laughs> get my coffee, crawl back into bed. It controls too much of my, there's an aspect of my thinking that's always like, you know, they talked about this when Instagram first started blowing up that you're like on vacation or you're with your family and you're not seeing the moment you're seeing the potential post. And like there are all of these times when I'm reading a book and it's, it's, Albert Camus or something, you know, something timeless. And I'm scanning the page and I'm realizing there's like something to pull for a tweet. And Uh, it's like, it's degrading my experience in the moment. Yeah. But um, yeah, I remember what, speaking of how much you read, I remember the last time we were in conversation was last year in Aspen and Mm -hmm. you were posted up women who run with wolves, wolves. (laughs) right? That was, (laughs) you were just posted up around the campus at different times of day. Classic. (laughs) Reading that. I've started to see that book all around. Like I, I hadn't heard of it before I saw you with it, but now I'm noticing different friends have it on their coffee tables. That's interesting. Yeah, that's a great text 
for specifically like individuation, which is broadly speaking, a process by which a human being comes to be fully rooted, fully integrated, able to hold their shadows and their lights within them with a kind of ease and not with a kind of like either seeing themselves as a victim of it or the opposite. That book is specifically in service of that, but for women. Mm. So it's a series of fairy tales, really, and stories collected from all around the world. But the author is actually showing how these fairy tales are explaining a growing process for women that women can take from it and apply it to their own lives. And oh, okay. so it's really, it's a really deep and powerful book. I hope I get this right. Clarissa Pincola Estes, is, okay. I believe, is her full name. Um, but yeah, she's she's great. It's a beautiful text. Okay, cool. I, I'm gonna try to. I'm gonna eavesdrop on the conversation uh, that she's having with with women. I'm yeah, gonna try to see what do. the knowledge is. Please um, do. Separating the light and dark. So, what are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? I'm reading. So, I'm a huge fan of Carl Jung, and I'm a mm. huge fan of a lot of the women who were his colleagues. Marion Woodman was incredible, incredible colleague of his, and she wrote a book called Addiction to Perfection, which I read last mm. year and I often revisit. I'm reading another book by her called The Pregnant Virgin, which is fascinating. Similar theme. I'm reading another book by James Bridle, and I don't remember the title because it's so long, but it's basically about how we as human beings, how we evolved as a species, like the way we got here was to be present with mm-hmm. It's paradoxical to say present with nature because technically speaking, everything is nature, but I'm just going to say that mm-hmm. we we evolved by being present with nature. And I don't know if you're familiar with Ian McGilchrist's work. At I don't all. think so. No. So he wrote a book called The Master and His Emissary, which is about the two brain hemispheres, mm-hmm. the right and the left. And he argues that the left brain, the way our left hemisphere perceives the world is as objects to be controlled and exploited and dominated, whereas the left or excuse me, the the right hemisphere sees the gestalt, essentially, Mm. the wholeness of everything. And he argues that in a lot of Western civilization, the left hemisphere took over Mm -hmm. our, our way of seeing and our way of being. And then this book by James Bridal, he argues about how we need to basically go back to that more or root the left hemisphere perception in a more holistic right hemisphere mm. perception. Okay. So you're, you're, <laughs> <laughs> I like <Light> drop. <laughs> <laughs> so this is fascinating to me. So then, so you're reading Jungian psychology. Yeah. You're taking two days off for every day on, on social media and you're also rotating in and out of mushrooms. Yeah. One day, one day, one day on, two on, days two off. Days off? Yeah. What's that like? It's cool. I love, I think that shrooms are definitely my medicine of choice, if we want to call it a medicine. And how would I describe the shroom experience? For me personally, enhances that sort of like right hemisphere way of seeing, of, of seeing the interconnectedness of all things. You know, I, anytime I say the word interconnectedness, I immediately think of the Lion King when, <laughs> when Mufasa told his son, he was like, Everything is the great circle of life. And Simba was like, Mufasa goes, oh, we, we, there's the antelope and, and here we are. And then Simba goes, but don't we eat the antelope? And then he has to, you know, show his son the way. And he goes, yes, but when we die, our bodies become the grass and the antelope eat the grass. And so everything is connected. So, yeah, I would say shrooms like enhances my perception of that. Okay. And it helps your work too? Your yeah. writing? And, yeah, you think For so? For sure. Yeah, because... 
I'm That's curious. Question, I've never, actually. I've never tried it ever. I've never tried anything other than the coffee that I rely on to, to change what? my state for work. Yeah. What? <laughs> I am shocked to hear that. You struck me as someone who, at least in an early life, dabbled. <laughs> no, no, I know. I mean, I, I'm not like, a, I, I mean, I'm not a teetotaler. I, I will drink yeah. in the evenings and stuff, but like for working or for focus, the only thing I've ever relied on is caffeine. I see. Yeah. I don't necessarily take it for work specifically, but it's it's becoming increasingly hard to separate Interesting. the work, the work life in my own world. It's like everything is permeating everything right. else. But then if you're taking shrooms every few days, how does that affect your like working out and your physical fitness and things like yeah. this? Because you're also you're also paying attention to that. Yeah. How does that integrate? So does it uh, because it's a microdose? It's it doesn't very actually subtle. prevent you from going to the gym. No, it's very subtle. Huh. It's a very low, not even a humming. It's like less than a humming. But what what does it do then? I really am asking from complete ignorance. Yeah. What is what if it's so low and and, and just a hum? What does it actually augment or change? Have you seen? Are you familiar with Terrence Malick's work, the film director? A bit, yeah. Okay, so have you seen any of his films? Yep. So which films have you seen? Oh, God. What is the... Well, I was going to say, what's like this slow-ass film? <laughs> All from, of his films From are 10 years slow. ago. Tree of Life? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saw that. That's, yeah, that, that's the one. <laughs> that's the one. Visually beautiful. Yeah. Is what I can so, tell you. So Terrence Malick is my favorite film director. And I don't know if you remember the wife's sort of... Basically, his way of filming and the way he captures nature and the character's relationship to nature, that's what I'm experiencing when I'm on, when I'm microdosing on Wow, you're like living in a Terrence, you're living in your favorite director's. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Cinematic world. Exactly. That's a good sell. I mean, for me, like I would like to be in like a Michael Clayton film or something like that. I don't know if I've seen any of Born Identity. I'd like to, you know. Just keep drinking coffee. (laughs) Just continue with what you're doing. You're doing it right. But that's like very like high energy. Yeah, that's not going to be shrooms for me. That's going to be something for me to be like, that's going to be steroids or something if I'm going to be in the Born Identity. Yeah. (laughs) Also, like I would worry if... How would I be able to stay? There's a kind of paranoia in that. That's true. That is true. There's a kind of paranoia that can take over your life if you're constantly in that stage. That's very true. It's a bit tricky to define philosophy. Mark and Mark. Philosophy is our attempt to get our bearings in the broadest sense possible. What is the nature of reality? What are we supposed to achieve with our lives in order to live a worthy life? Philosophy is not defined by its answers, but by the way that it pursues its questions. There's metaphysics, ethics, and there's epistemology. No appeals to revelations, to holy scripture are permissible. Science didn't itself discover its own methodology. That would be putting the horse before take part. That was a pun, and I promise I won't do that again. What is the self? Do we even know that it exists, much less what it is? Such questions as the hard problem of consciousness, the problem of personal identity, the problem of free will. And for all of these problems, different philosophers will reach very different conclusions on the basis of their philosophical reasoning. This series is not, after all, an introduction to the history of philosophy, but to philosophy itself. That we can 
really make some progress together in orienting ourselves in the world, scrupulously examining our intuitions and presuppositions. What manner of person do you want to be? What manner of person ought you to be? And cut. <laughs> So if we get in this AI future where, you know, work is solved and, you know, every... Well, that's a big statement. That's a big statement. But, <laughs> but we get to this future that people sometimes speculate has to happen if we're going to avoid a complete social breakdown and you have some type of universal basic income. Yeah. Then would more people be able... Would, would the goal be that then we would lose some aspect of ourselves and our meaning and we would have to find other ways of relating to this this world that For sure. is our context. Would that be... Would would everybody need to be microdosing or well, using other ways of accessing states of mind to kind of compensate for yes, the loss? Not I necessarily wonder. microdosing, but yes, to the second thing. I think that we're already in a meaning crisis. So mm -hmm. when people present it as if like, oh, the our meaning, our relationship to meaning will change, our relationship to meaning is already crumbled mm -hmm. <laughs> and it is crumbling and is actively crumbling. Also, I think that like a lot of our relationship to work has been heavily mediated by Protestantism. Oh, just very like much so, yeah. Deeply, right? And the Protestant work ethic and Calvinism. And that is a whole worldview. And that is a whole set of perceptual, I don't want to say biases, but I'm using that neutrally. I'm using that term neutrally when I say biases. And so, yeah, that is, that's ossifying, that's crumbling. And we are going to have to create new ways of being. And I don't think everyone will have to microdose. I don't think I'll be microdosing forever, right? For the rest of my life <laughs> <laughs> to, to be in this state. There's also a lot of other, I say a lot. There's just like, you know, I meditate daily. Mm -hmm. I, I'm reading the books that I'm reading. So it's not just a microdosing. Mm -hmm. It's like a just whole incorporated thing. Into, yeah. Entire and, practice. And in that sense, I do think more people are going to have to become sincere about developing a practice. But that seems to me like it's an enormous crisis looming, not just with, you know, if we solve work or work becomes obsolete, but also yeah. just if we no longer... AI is such a, you know, it's a ubiquitous topic right now, but if it's even like partially what people expect it could be, it's really, it's got so many implications, you know, it's yeah. not just the, the UBI and the work, but it's also if all of the answers and then the real capacity to create knowledge mm -hmm. and to, you know, do science and, you know, to do law and to do, so, to mm -hmm. write, you know, to write compelling stories or analyses of today's news events. If all of that is really being done as well as humans can do it or better by AI, I mean, we're going to have to think hard about what grounds us, what we get meaning from. I mean, yeah. much of your work is about the crisis of meaning. I think that's, you've connected this to the polarization in our politics, to, sure. the, to the the inability of us to transcend racial mm -hmm. um, categorization and differences. And mm -hmm. I think that that's going to be really emphasized more mm -hmm. and more going forward. Do you uh, think that, what, wait, what do you think is going to be emphasized specifically? The, the need for oh. us to take seriously the lack of meaning. I think we get to kind of put that on the back burner because there's so many yeah. pressing kitchen table issues always to take care of. But it, were those things to be taken off the table, we'd have to confront, sure. you know, the abyss, the, the emptiness yeah. of so much. Life. And, 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 you know, I live most of the time I live in Paris um, and there's such, you know, social upheaval right now about mm -hmm. um, the right not to be forced to work longer. Mm -hmm. You know, the, mm -hmm. the, um, the raising of the retirement age from 62 to 64 was a massive. Yeah. Um, I feel like we would never protest that. We would never protest. <laughs> 
that here because that is not a Calvinist Protestant right. society. Right. There are real differences. We live in a society that has a very different relationship to work. Mm-hmm. And I think that we're work to be solved. The, the French, you know, not a perfect society, but they wouldn't have some of the same crises of sure. meaning that uh, you would notice here in America. Sure. Yeah. I mean, productivity as the highest value on the hierarchy of values, it's such a huge thing in America. And it's affected not just you know, our relationship to work, but pop culture, I think about, and also gender, which we can get into. So like I wrote a recent piece, in my Substack about the intersection of what it means to have your sense of self dependent upon how productive you are, especially if you're a man and the higher rates at which men are dying. Mm-hmm. Compared to women, whether it's from COVID or deaths of despair, deaths of despair, you know, stuff like that. And so I think, you know, we're already full of crises mm-hmm. <laughs> right now, but we can't see them. They're mm-hmm. not so apparent to us. We're sort of just like going about our day in a very ho-hum fashion. But there's already arguably COVID-19 level crises that, mm-hmm. that we face at, at present. I think about this also in hip hop, right? Like hip hop is about the accumulation of wealth, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's very American. A, it's so it's American. American. It's so, and it's so Protestant also, mm-hmm. right? And there was this whole- You show your blessed status literally on your body by how many chains, chains you can wearing. display. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> Dave Chappelle, you know, had this joke about Kanye, uh, the billionaire. He's like, <laughs> he's like, I don't- a billionaire doesn't wear his chains. And mm-hmm. then when he became a millionaire, he's like, get your chains out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like prominent in the culture. And I don't know if you saw recently, there was this whole thing on the breakfast club with, um, you know, Ebony K Williams. Why do I know the name? The name sounds familiar to me, but I can't place it. So she was on Real Housewives of New York. She's like been a regular guest on the Breakfast Breakfast Club. Club. I know her through a friend, actually. Uh I haven't really sat down with her to talk to her one on one, but I really want to. And I reached out. So and she said she would. So that should happen soon. But there was this whole controversy because, you know, she's very successful. She's very wealthy. She was asked by Jan Levan Zant if she would ever date a bus driver. And she said, she just said something terrible. (laughs) No, she didn't say Uh, anything terrible. It's not, she didn't actually say anything terrible. She said, I would date him if he owned the bus, which I don't Mm. actually think is terrible. I think I could disagree with it. I could Mm -hmm. agree with it, but it's whatever. It's her personal preference. Right. But then of course, inevitably people piled on her Mm -hmm. and then she doubled down. And when she doubled down, what she said when she doubled down, in my opinion, was terrible. (laughs) 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 So then she became terrible in her statements and she basically made it about like a lesser value sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And she was invited onto the breakfast club to discuss it. She disagreed with that description, but I think it's very clear if you listen to her follow-up comments. Um, She's making this argument about how, like, if you get C's and D's, I'm not going to tell you that your C's and D's are okay. I'm going to expect you to to do better. And it's wrapped up in all these conversations about Black excellence, Mm. right, and the entrepreneurial sort of striving. Mm -hmm. I grew up with Black Enterprise magazine Mm -hmm. in my house, right? So I'm, like, hearing this and I'm, I'm, like, drawn back to that time and seeing those things. And so, yeah, I say all this to say that I don't have answers, but the conversation is happening in many different 
you know, parts of the culture, whether it's hip hop and black culture or whether it's in psychological circles. And I think that there could be an interesting way for all these people to start talking to each other. Mm-hmm. I think that would be so cool. But that's the thing. It was like, we, like you mentioned the breakfast club or something like we don't actually often talk to each other, even with the kind of the ubiquity of the internet and everything. Everyone's yeah. still having separate discussions. And I've always been convinced that we're not going to get past a lot of what is polarizing mm-hmm. and balkanizing our society mm-hmm. um, so long as we're, we continue to be so segregated. We have to have some type of sense of national, yeah. I don't know if fraternity is the word, but yeah. national identity that transcends the ethnic and, mm-hmm. and, you know, and skin color differences. And it keeps being evident to me that we're getting farther and farther away Mm -hmm. from that idea. I mean, I've just been surprised by what I've been able to see, certainly since, you know, the summer of 2020. But um, even in the past year, since like Elon took over Twitter Mm -hmm. and I just see more of the nastiness, I've been surprised how much um, so many people don't actually even hold that as a goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Well, yeah. And like, if you talk about like, you know, the, the kind of like the urban crime, which I'm very interested in, or like the kind of the horrible kind of story that came up this week mm-hmm. with Jordan Neely on the subway. You see how divided people's yeah, perceptions of the same events are immediately filtered right. through these kind of ideological lenses. And this idea that we are not all in this together, trying to right. get to a common sense of meaning and an American identity. I don't know what the answers are. I mean, uh, I certainly can see, you know, there are enormous problems, you know, mm-hmm. in, in American cities, mm-hmm. specifically since COVID. There mm-hmm. always is some element of chaos in American urban life. But, you know, since COVID, things have been kind of noticeably worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, the West Coast is truly insane to really? me. You know, this time last year, I spent some time in Portland and Seattle, and I was just blown away wow. um, by the amount of, you know, disorder that's permitted. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you know, I, 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 I was living in New York for a decade before moving to Paris in 2011. I come back a lot, but I've, I've been back more and more. And now I've, I've been back teaching in, uh, in New York state and in the city a lot for the past few months. And just, it's really been impressed on me, the degree to which an, an amount of disorder has been, mm. um, creeping back into New York city life in a way that I don't remember from when I was here in, okay. in the early aughts. Uh, through, you know, in the Obama era. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, you've been in New York for a while now. I mean, I wonder, yeah, for what, eight years. what is your feeling when you're getting on the subway? I mean, are people blowing this type of thing out of, out of proportion to score points uh, on Twitter or? I mean, they definitely are. And, <laughs> and there is a problem on the subway, on the subways. I mean, it's not so common or regular though. But there's like, the actual violence is not so common or regular, but yeah. I noticed there's a mood. That seems uh, angrier, more potentially uncontrollable sure. or, or something. There, there's a different energy in the subway. It, it was much worse a year or two ago after mm-hmm. after the subways emptied out. Right. And it's, the subways are filling back up. But still, like, you know, I've noticed that, like, you can be on a packed subway mm-hmm. on a morning and somebody mm-hmm. will just light a joint, you know. Uh, and yeah. th- that there's an edge to that because it's, yeah, it's yeah, so yeah, intensely sure. antisocial that you don't know exactly what can happen. It's like the possibility of violence is, is in the room. <laughs> now if people are disregarding sure 
norm. And the, the video of Jordan Neely is extraordinarily disturbing. Yeah, I ref- I'm not going to watch it. But. But, but one of the things that you see if you watch it is that yeah. it's there's the white Marine mm-hmm. who's got him in a in a hold. But then there's like a brown skinned guy who's holding his hands and there's a black guy mm-hmm. standing right by. And it's actually not. And so the, the kind of the immediate way that everybody talks about it is they go straight to their racial right. argument list. Yeah. And so yeah. then you got like Nicole Hannah Jones and people like that. This is a lynching. Right. I, it, I but, really, but, but is it a, is it a, I'm not sure that that's exactly. I just want to say that is really irresponsible. It is right. That is so profoundly irresponsible. And she should know better. So I, I think it's important to state that. And for, for those of you who are watching this, if this is your go-to default thing to do, especially if you have such a huge platform. It's really irresponsible. Be very careful with your reaction and try and actually don't react, respond. And those are not the same things. Right. Right. There's a subtle distinction between those two things. And this, yeah, that is so irresponsible. Well, I was shocked. And she wasn't the only one in Mark Lamont Hill. This is a lynching. Well, that doesn't this shock is me. A, this is a modern, this is a contemporary <laughs> lynching. Mark's response doesn't shock me. But, <laughs> but, but yeah. first of all, words need to mean something. It sure. wasn't, it was not a lynching. I think that it's extraordinarily uh, sad and unfortunate and probably unnecessary mm-hmm. that this 30 year old man, Jordan Neely, died. And I've tried to put myself, this is something that I I'd like to talk with you about too, because so many people talk about it through the lens of race, yeah. politics, even just poverty. But this is on the spiritual level too. Can you imagine the despair yeah. of walking into a train and saying, I'm exhausted from being hungry, right. from being thirsty, and no one cares? And I mean, <clears throat> right. that is actually, I'm not sure that is mental illness. I think that mm. if you, because I pass in any city you're in, and this is not just an American problem, this is a human problem in Paris, yeah. anywhere, you pass people who are on the street and every day they're on the street and they're struggling to get even enough to eat. And I mean, it's almost surprising that they're not screaming every day. Sure. I can't take this. I can't live like this anymore. Sure. Yeah. There is a despair that has seeped into our society. And I actually think the despair is what to be full of grace, to be graceful. I think that that despair is actually what animates the automatic reaction to say, oh, this is a lynching. Oh, this is a this is class warfare, you know, whatever. I think that the despair piece drives the tendency to try and immediately look at it in a very black and white lens. Because it's almost like we can't handle. Right, because it's a, it's a, it's a way to control the situation. Yeah, right? I know what you mean. It's a coping mechanism. What, what would it mean for us to actually try to peer into how dark... Right. Uh, modern life has become that right. we have thousands of people in every city yeah. in this situation. And mm-hmm. most of us, you know, have our headphones on. We're right. looking at our Minders. iPhones and we don't want to think about it. Even the good woke progressive responses are kind of profoundly disturbing. Her name is Bess Kalb. I, okay. I think she's... I think I'm familiar with some of her... Tweets. A journalist. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's kind of a name that pops up on Twitter. She tweeted something that on the surface seems nice, but actually is insane. What did she tweet? She said, you know, she was immediately reacting. Mm-hmm. She didn't say lynching, but, you know, this was murder. Right. Uh, I just want to say, like, this was horrific. I think that it got out of hand, but I don't believe that anybody intended. Mm-hmm. I, I really don't, but without being there and just from the sure. evidence I can see, it doesn't look like people set out to kill this man for being poor right. as there's a kind of discussion framing it. But she said, you know, I'm, I've been in New York for years and this is a situation that happens all the time. And you just, I carry granola bars for this reason. You just give, mm-hmm. you just give them a dollar and a granola bar, like mm-hmm. problem solved. And that kind of got quote tweeted a lot. People started to notice like, what? the hell yeah <laughs> you, like 
Yeah. Like you good white progressive yeah, woman yeah, yeah, with yeah. your like uh, purse full of a few extra granola bars <laughs> in case you run into like a representative of the underclass. Uh, you know what I mean? And yeah, then you just yeah, like yeah. and then you feel good about yourself and you're like yeah. a better person than than people who are actually saying that there is some aspect of the government's responsibility sure. that is not being performed. You know, sure. I think first and foremost, just to give a little bit of context, Jordan Neely is a person who was apparently horrifically traumatized in his life. His mm. stepdad killed his mom mm. when he was a teenager. Mm-hmm. He's been living in the streets. He was he had some talent as a dancer. He was performing as Michael Jackson. Um, yeah. uh, and and he was trying to survive. Yeah. But he had also been arrested some 40 odd times mm-hmm. and um, clearly had mental health uh, disorders and needed some type of intervention from the right. state that didn't happen. He also had an active warrant. I mean, th- it seems to me that the state has abdicated its role yeah. over and over again in preserving a kind of order sure. in the streets. And it's not just a racial thing. I mean, the other night I was walking to an after party, um, like 26th Street at the, at the Ritz okay. Hotel. And <laughs> outside of the Ritz, you know, it's, it's almost like a Latin. American feeling where there's there are security guards guarding the door so people yeah. who are going to the Ritz are safe. But there's a white guy screaming racial epithets against BLM and mm. N-words and, and all harm mm. people mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. just ranting and raving in the street. And, you know, there's an edge. For sure. Yeah. And it's not people always say when you mention, you know, disorder in an urban context, that's a, that's anti-black language. But no, yeah. th- this is not a it's not simply a racial matter. There's, sure. there's a matter of our government, um, our local government, not preserving a certain modicum of order in public space that makes it harder to for everybody to flourish and everybody's more vulnerable, less safe. Yeah. And then you have a situation like this where citizens on the subway think they're taking it into their own hands right. because no one is no one, no one else be, is stepping right. up. Yeah. I mean, this, <laughs> this reminds me of so much alienated America by Timothy P. Carney, where he talks about the breakdown of civil society and how it led to the election of Trump in the primary. When you said the government abdicating its role, I also thought we as citizens and I count, I count myself in this, like forfeiting our participation with the government or in government, absolutely in local government, right? I mean, it's um, it is a abdication of responsibility on the part of all of us ultimately. And then the question becomes, what do we do about it? I find myself because of my you know my social media diet. I say things now, like on my on my Substack, and you know even in vocal active conversation, where I am not qualifying my statements. Like I'm not mm. because by being off social media, I'm attuned also to a different rhythm that's happening live, right? Mm-hmm. And it's different than the rhythm that's happening on Twitter. And it's far more full of dimension and dimensionality. And I can play with that. I can play in that space without feeling the need to qualify my statements about like, oh, you might see, you might perceive this somehow as anti-black or you, <laughs> right. you, I, I mean, I even you had to do that. You might this as anti-trans. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 we're going to, we're going to be humans <laughs> in the present moment. And we're going to, we're going to have a jam session, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to, we're going to try to do jazz actually mm-hmm. in this conversation. And it's a musical orientation. It's a call and response orientation. It's live. It's vital. And that's the space that I choose. I make a conscious choice to be in. And it's, so that's also partially why I take breaks because it, it messes up my filter if I'm like, mm, you know, mm-hmm. on it too long. Mm-hmm. I, this is a question that occurred to me. You're the perfect person to talk to about this. What would the appropriate response be in a situation like that? If in fact somebody mm-hmm. steps into your subway car, mm-hmm. you're not alone. So it's not just your problem. You're, there are many people there. Mm-hmm. They say, I'm 
so tired of being hungry. I'm so tired of being thirsty. No one cares. Yeah. I'll, I'll hurt anyone. I'm ready to go to jail. I'm ready to die. Yeah. But they also are, he was not physically imposing. Sure. He didn't identify anybody and, and come towards them. Sure. What's the better way to handle that? Or what is the way we should think about handling that? And maybe you don't know, but yeah. I, I, you seem like somebody that would be good to talk to about that because I've tried to think what would the right response be? I, I mean, I certainly wouldn't, my first reaction wouldn't be to yoke him up into right. a chokehold. Right. It wouldn't yeah. be. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's right. So I don't know what I would do in that situation, but I would hope that if I encountered or if I was with people who encountered this, that other people ha- did have like access to a water bottle or access to mm-hmm. something that was nourishing to give it to the him. granola. So the granola, so best calve is looking better now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not a, it's a bandaid, right? It uh-huh. doesn't actually fix the system, but it is what is immediately called for in the, in this moment. Like he's telling you what he needs. This is what he needs. And also in an ideal society, there are elders in the society. And I don't mean that from an age perspective. I just mean like people who are integrated, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and able to show up to hold society up, which includes being able to hold a container for this man. Mm. So whether that means a bunch of people going to him and giving him words of encouragement, right? Who have the wherewithal and the sense of safety within themselves to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Like that plus the granola bar is what I would prefer to see in an ideal society. And then some sort of situation where the next day he won't be right, hungry and right. thirsty and again some, in the exact same place, situation, some, which is really like a bigger role than individuals. Right. You know, you need some type some, of structure. Yeah, for sure. Some institutional support for sure. there. Um, like, are, I'm not aware of, like, I know that 311 is the number you call when you encounter homeless people who are in need of shelter, but like... I don't know that the average New Yorker knows that. Mm-hmm. Um, I also don't know if there's I don't know if that's even enough um, resources resources like, available for everyone who does need it. Right, um, right. And you've got Eric Adams now talking about increasing you know, or lowering the threshold for involuntary commitment for people mm. that display mental health disorders. I'm not sure where yeah. that means they go or yeah. what that what that's type a, of help that means they get. That's a rock and a hard place right there. Yeah. But it, it seems to me that, you know, you can't have when I was in Portland, Portland being for me, I think even more than San Francisco, yeah. the kind of apotheosis of this, mm-hmm. whatever the great word. <laughs> yeah. Whatever the thing happening in contemporary American cities is Portland is the mm extreme limit of it yeah. and you know it, it gets to a point where you can't conduct uh business as usual in large swaths of downtown the sure. apple store has three layers of fencing around it and armed security guards like it's uh you're like you're in the green zone in iraq mm-hmm. you know in 20 2008 i yeah. mean it's really crazy and like people can't live and work that way so the government does i mean you can't have a just kind of complete libertarianism in the streets, for sure. you know, for sure. That's and, right. And you know, it's not just New York or the West coast, it's DC. It's everywhere. Mm. I mean, it's right steps away from the Capitol. I mean, you go to DC in the middle of the day, you can go, you can want to withdraw money from a bank, but in the lobby of the bank, people are just like, smoking and getting high oh really so you're not gonna go in that you're not so you, 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 Whoa. You, yeah it's just it's they didn't actually threaten you and this this kind of discourse online where like a certain type of usually white appearing twitter user says like oh please karen like uh, can you can you deal i mean they, it's like, like no i can't well actually like that uh, you know <laughs> Maybe I can't. Maybe, Maybe I need I to. Or, or like, let's have a conversation. Or like, why? Yeah. Like, even the automatic reflex to right? respond in that way is indicative of the problem. Right. Like, 
th- that automatic reflex actually what is that? demonstrates that they can't deal. Right. right? They're so That's a very good they're so like paranoid or really quite um fragile about mm-hmm. their sense of self that any perceived threat to it is their sense a of self is like an understanding compassionate person they can't even or just like yeah like their sense of their place in the world mm. right mm-hmm. is so threatened that they can't even countenance people questioning and they hear questioning as an arms race right mm. like it's like oh we're about to go to war that is not that's unsustainable for any society yeah yeah right that's exactly right and then there are so many people who you know you're kind of really nasty race realist Richard Hanania wow. kind of Twitter users who How? immediately say yeah. that this is black pathology. Uh, so 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 where is Albert so I think Murray that they poison the him. water. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the fake lore of, yeah. uh, of black pathology but but they immediately poison the water so a lot of decent people don't want to be anywhere near that. Right. So they overcompensate. Of, so they overcompensate. So you actually can't have a realistic conversation about the issues, right. you know, but and it leaves everybody uh the worst. Right. Even the word pathology technically speaking means study of suffering right so Pathos. yeah exactly so this attempt to demonize like one side is attempting to deify and the other side is attempting to demonize mm-hmm. and both of those are acts of dehumanization exactly right exactly and so we really need to get to this space where we're able to understand that what it means to be a human being is to contain that shadow and that light that we talked about earlier. And this is actually the practice of integration, right? The practice of integration, which is beautifully represented in the yin-yang sign, right, symbol, is the understanding or presupposes the understanding that there is no shadow without light and there is mm-hmm. no light without shadow. Like the two depend upon each other in order to exist. And so there's a lot of work that we have to do as individuals in our communities, in our societies at large. And we can all start now, (laughs) you know, the people who have enough security and stability in their lives to start can start now and be those people who are are going to commit to holding up society. Society doesn't just get held up by like, I don't know, the gods in the sky. Like it takes an active participation and relationship with ourselves, with our community to be able to do that. I don't know if you've seen... Pinocchio? Gosh, not in some time. <laughs> I have seen You're it like, in my where life. Where is this going? <laughs> so I... But it makes me think of Tucker Carlson. Oh, a, tell, tell me how, how? Just telling lies. Uh, <laughs> why are you lying, man? <laughs> why are you lying all the time? We should talk about Tucker because it's very interesting. Like the tweet that I read or the text that, that oh, I read about yeah. why that's so interesting, right? We should Crazy. talk about I do that. want to talk about that with you because I think it's insane, yeah. actually. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is insane. But I want to know why you... You think it's insane, but wait, let me make this one. Yeah, point. please. So I became, I saw Pinocchio like as a child, but I didn't remember it. But then I watched Jordan Peterson's Maps of Meaning lectures mm-hmm. in 2020. And there's one episode where he talks about Pinocchio and it just came uh, alive for me. Again. I need to watch that. That's yeah, interesting. Yeah. It's actually very fun to watch it while smoking weed, which I know you don't. Which I know you don't <laughs> no, do. <laughs> I don't. I'm not against smoking weed. Just like, please don't do that on the L train sure. when I'm heading sure. into the city to try yeah, to yeah, be yeah. a be serious person. With your smoking. <laughs> yeah. No, but so there's a scene in Pinocchio where he's taken to Pleasure Island <laughs> by this crazy dude who's trying to enslave all of these boys. So okay. he like takes them to Pleasure Island, and he says, "You could just destroy." Everything that you see, there's a house that they destroy, Mm -hmm. they start drinking and smoking and like basically descending into chaos, Mm -hmm. right? And halfway through the scene, Pinocchio notices that all the boys start 
changing physically into donkeys. <laughs> so they literally. Pin- Pinocchio gets woke real quick. Yeah, He's like, wait yeah, a minute, yeah, exactly. wait a minute. <laughs> Something's off. Yeah, he literally, they, they start changing into donkeys. And that's because the guy who brings these boys is actually, what his actual plan is to change them into donkeys and cart them off into slavery. Jesus. It's a beautiful metaphor for everything that we're talking about here, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, when you're talking about the lawlessness and the breakdown and the destruction of the society, like, Pinocchio actually has incredible commentary on that, if anyone wants to revisit that. What is Peterson's point, then, in, when he's doing the lecture on it? Uh, well, so Peterson is trying to... What? That's a great question. I don't know if I can... Peterson is trying to elucidate how reality works, like mm-hmm. how reality itself works. And he's basically arguing that if you develop this relationship with reality, which is irresponsible, which is I'm just going to say fuck it mm-hmm. and like do whatever I want and have no sense of uh, accountability, responsibility to myself, to my family, to my community. This is what actually ends up happening. Do you know what? He's right. Yeah. Shout out to Jordan Peterson. He's a, he's, he's actually a really nice guy. Yeah. Uh, we had lunch once. Cool. And um, I mean, it was an amazing kind of performance. He ate just an ungodly amount of Wagyu beef. (laughs) Nothing but Wagyu beef. I just couldn't. Is he still on his red meat diet? Oh, yeah. That's weird. And he kind of, (laughs) he kind of had this amazing ability like to speak for two hours Mm -hmm. basically, but like across such a breadth of He's channeling. Topics. Sure. It was, it was, it was, it was amazing. It was almost like, it was like a personal Joe Rogan experience where I just got like two hours of, you know, it was very interesting. I would love to see him, Peterson in conversation with Cornell West. Oh man, that wouldn't be bad. Yeah. I mean, I, so I just spent the weekend with Cornell, uh, with with Brother West. We did a conversation together, Mm -hmm. um, where we were, we've done, this is like the third time we've been in conversation together, but the first time in person because COVID had it by okay. Zoom. And so I, I love this man. Yeah. Corn, <laughs> Dr. Cornell West, first of all, is, I think he might be the smartest person I've ever met. He is mm. an absolute genius. Yeah. He's also maybe the kindest person I've ever met. Mm. I, I mean, you know, like That's when no one is watching kind, you yeah. know, like when no one is watching, peeling off a 20 and giving it to mm. This person that no one thought of or, you know, always anybody that wants to come That's up to beautiful. him and talk to him. He's got time. He'll take their number. He'll give his number. Wow. He'll give advice. He'll hug. He, I mean, the man is just a force. That's beautiful. He's also funny as hell. Like we were in line at the airport going through security. And I just realized, I was like, Brother West, where are your bags? He was, he, and he, he was like, I never travel with bags. He's like, I'm a free black man. I got to be ready to run. Oh my <laughs> it was God. amazing. It was amazing. And then like. I have so many questions, first of all. <laughs> You know, this, the TSA agent, you know, people are coming up to him constantly, by the way. Right. I've been around actors and, and musicians. I've never seen someone be approached more than yeah. Cornel West. I mean, hundreds of people I over the course that. of two days. TSA agents coming to give him a hug. Yeah. Everybody loves him. In the line, you know, they said, like, take off your shoes unless you're 75 years old. Then you can leave your shoes on. And he was like, you trying to tell me if I'm 75 years old, I'm no longer a threat? <laughs> Everyone in the line loved it and laughed. He's just funny. He, awesome. He's great. I would love to see those two in conversation because the thing about our talk that we do together is called The Absolute Condemnation of No One. It's about how to achieve a redemptive society. Yeah. And one of West's main points is that he doesn't cancel people. He'll talk 
to people, even when they have disagreement, there's yeah. some type of common ground that you can find to build on. And I think it would be really fascinating to see him in conversation with someone like Jordan Peterson, yeah. who they would disagree on things. But, you know, you've been in you've done his podcast, actually, yeah, right? For sure. What was that like? It was cool. I had just finished Maps of Meaning, the book. And he found you. Yeah. And he didn't know that I was like following him for mm-hmm. <laughs> for a long time, even pre-COVID. But it was great. I Why did he reach out to you? Do you know or do you remember? I think it was just to talk about DEI and... Oh, he's talking to you about Theory of Enchantment. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, which has a lot of overlap with Maps of Meaning in terms of our common love for Jungian stuff. There's a lot of Jungian stuff in Maps of Meaning and in his worldview in general, a lot of like archetypal hero's journey style mm-hmm. thinking. So, but yeah, it was great. We really, we vibed a lot. I thought it was a good vibe. He also, it would be interesting to see him in conversation with Cornel West because they both have a musical dialectic in the way that they converse with people. Mm-hmm. Like, his, like They're both very talented, yeah. like not just speakers or communica- communicators, but performers. Right. They have a stage presence. Right. Both of them. Yeah. Yeah. I've been amazed at how Jordan Peterson was able to, he was like ready. He was just in academia for decades, but then he was ready for <laughs> the moment doing. the cameras <laughs> turned on to like seize that moment yeah. with like a persona, a stage yeah. persona. But but I do want to talk to you about Tucker Carlson. Oh, though. yeah. Yeah, speaking let's do of it. liars, let's do it. <laughs> you know, this speaking of liars like Pinocchio, I want to say mm. I, I'm not throwing shade at anybody and any. The only liar who's not a fictional character here is Tucker Carlson. <laughs> um, he texts to one of his producers a couple of weeks ago. I was watching video of people fighting on the street in Washington. Yeah. A group of Trump guys surrounded an Antifa kid and started pounding the living shit out of him. Mm. It was three against one, at least. Jumping a guy like that is dishonor- dishonorable, obviously. It's not how white men fight. Mm-hmm. Yet suddenly I found myself rooting for the mob against the man, hoping they'd hit him harder, kill him. I really wanted them to hurt the kid. I could taste it. Then somewhere deep in my brain, an alarm went off. This isn't good for me. I'm becoming something I don't want to be. The Antifa creep is a human being. I mean, and it is keeps it going Is becoming not white? <laughs> but the, 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 so I want to emphasize that, yes, at some point he pulls back and he says that on some that level moment. he's aware that he's tripping. But, <laughs> but he doesn't actually understand that one of the things that's the craziest thing that he said is like he racializes right. something that, first of all, has nothing. To, this is just pure racecraft. It has right, nothing to right. do with race, these behaviors. Right. Um, you know, have you ever been to... England and seen a a, a soccer game. Yeah. I mean, football hooligans in Europe. Yeah, they get they do nothing but gang up on people. So the yeah. idea that white people fight like in like chivalrous duels, yeah, and like only people of POC, right? Uh, what what is he smoking? Gang up on people is insane. Yeah, I that's weird. It's just a it's, the, that his brain works that way, and you realize that he was the most watched person in the media, mm-hmm. and you know, guiding the thoughts subtly and not subtly on racial matters in this country. It's like horrifically irresponsible and poisonous. Do you think he always had this worldview or he sort of transmogrified into? Good question. Because, you know, he used to be like a regular kind of journalist, like libertarian, establishmentarian, Republican. Yeah. He was on PBS. Yeah. You know, like, but, you know, it's it's a good question. Like, what is in people's minds, actually? Mm. You know, is that how a lot of people walk through the world thinking that just any number of behaviors that don't have a racial component actually are racialized? I mean, also, what is the relationship between celebrity of that nature, a celebrity meaning in a hyper-polarized context 
where you are incentivized to be ridiculous and to racialize, right? You're incentivized to racialize in uh, in doing battle with the progressive, right? You're incentivized to racialize the other way, mm-hmm. right? And then, you know, the numbers come, the money comes, the fame comes, the power comes. Like, how does that actually transform you into this monster? Yeah, as much that you're even able to narrate the monstrosity of of, of your own feelings and thoughts like he does he says i realized i didn't like what i'm becoming yeah i wonder about that i mean we should think more about what is going on in the minds of some of these people that have these enormous megaphones and he's not the only one he's just the biggest example right Mm. i was sort of disappointed though to see that most people maybe i missed it but like a lot of people didn't seem to Talk about the second half of his text. Well, that was even omitted from the coverage, right? Like uh, in the headlines, they didn't even. Again, irresponsible. Which it is irresponsible <laughs> because I don't like anything to do with this text, but he spends mm-hmm. fully half of it walking back. Yeah, the interrogating thing, the thing that caught all of everybody's attention, the, the, the main headline. Yeah. And I'm just like, I don't know if you know Daryl Davis, the famous dude who got. I know. Yeah, I know of him. Yeah, a lot of the KKK people have come out of the KKK. But like, I read that, and even when I saw the part about white people, I was not triggered at all. It's interesting, because I would usually have felt a physical trigger response, but I wasn't triggered at all. And I think it's partially because I'm familiar with Daryl Davis's work, and it's like, in a process of de-radicalization, like, crazy people are going to say crazy shit, (laughs) right? That's true. So, like, I could easily see this as a part of a continual or a timeline in which even someone like Tucker becomes reformed, de-radicalized, whatever you want to call it. But like our the society in which we live in is just not conducive. The conditions are not conducive to even like steward that I mean, that's that a good process. Or, or is there a kind of mainstream, you know, I'll be honest, is there a kind of mainstream bias against people that are radicalized in that direction to the right? But, you know, a guy like Mehdi Hassan, who's yeah. got this big show on MSNBC or wherever they televise this guy, um, <laughs> you know, he was saying some of the most just horrific stuff when he was a fundamentalist um, Islamist yeah. about, you know, oh, about right. infidels being cattle. You can lie right. to them. You can you can abuse them. They don't matter. Oh, I didn't know this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got he's got televised speeches calling like basically non-Muslim swine, you know, and you can treat them anyway. Like Good morality God. doesn't apply to them wow. because they're not believers. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, he's got his, you know, I've changed my mind now. Sure. I'm, a, I'm a good progressive and I get to school everybody else in my British sure. accent on American TV, but he gets Shade none of comments. the scrutiny. <laughs> I don't like this guy at all. He gets none Shade. of the scrutiny For sure. from the New York Times or anywhere else that they direct at Tucker Carlson or other people from the right. And I, you know, I do think there is a double standard for that type of stuff. Yeah. You know, Mehdi Hassan, everybody's like, well, that was in the past and he's redeemed, mm. you know, it's weird. Yeah. I also think that people have this weird thing with brown people, people on the left often they like, can't be held accountable for bad views or yeah. amuletize brown people. That's part of the deification, right? Which is the opposite, but the same impact as demonization. And that's something that we are really, I mean, there's a, there's a whole Christian thing happening here in the background, right? There's a whole, like, I don't know what you would call it. Christian telos that mm-hmm. is 
that is at play and through all of this, whether you're on the right and the left, this is again a deeply Protestant country, and mm-hmm. like it's, it's showing up regardless of what side you're on. And that like savior complex, the and victim complex, which is wrapped up in the savior complex, it's like churning, churning, churning right now in the present moment. Yeah, I think that you can't talk about the American psyche without thinking about how deeply Christianized it is, even when people are unaware of that. I mean, yeah. that's not even. I mean, that's been understood for quite some time, but I don't think we actually take it as seriously as we mm. might, right? Yeah. I think growing up in a religious home made me take it seriously. Not only just- How religious of, was your house? Oh, religious. Really? <laughs> yeah. W- you were Seventh-day Adventist? I wasn't or? Seventh-day Adventist, but it was like, it could be classified as that because I went to church on Saturday instead uh-huh. of Sunday. But what was interesting about the way I was raised was it, it my parents trained me to look for- what's beneath the surface of what's happening in society. So like I didn't grow up celebrating Christmas and on Christmas day, my parents would like have us, I have four sisters, they would have us in the living room and we would just like read about Emperor Constantine and the wow. history of, yeah, 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 yeah. So it was very like. When we were just like with the Game Boys. You were, <laughs> Let's talk about the Council of Nicaea and the Church Fathers and the Mithras cult and how wow. December 25th was. so. My parents trained me to look for what was beneath the surface of what is happening in the present day. So history is very present, always present for me in in the way I look at the world. And so it's like, it's so clear to me that Christianity is like everywhere. It's it's the water we swim in. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And the idea of a kind of either a, you know, a savior figure or a scapegoat figure. I think a lot about, uh, I'm working on this book trying to make sense of 2020. And I think that the way that George Floyd died, for example, the the horrific video of that, and just the, the way that we mapped meaning onto what mm-hmm. we were seeing was, you know, that he, he was like a sacrificial figure dying for the sin right. of our, the original sin of our white supremacy and racism right. in this fallen country. And, you know, the religious overtones were everywhere. Yeah. And, the, you know, the muralizing of him and the kind of the enshrinement of the scene in yeah. front of the cup food where people made pilgrimages. And can't put candles yes. and the BLM signs as, oh, yeah. the, as the blood on the doorposts. Yeah, so yes. To, to show that you, it will, you know, the angel of death will pass, pass over. over you. Right, right, yeah. Yeah. I know, it's really, it's weird, it's weird. I mean... Super Christian. <laughs> super Christian. I'd love to get into like a longer conversation with you about that on another occasion. And, sure. And I hope we can do this conversation again. I really enjoyed it. Me I feel too. like the time flew by. Yeah, for sure. Oh, is it over? It is. So that's, we're, we're out. We're out of time. Here. We're out. We're out. <laughs> that flew by. I, I, yeah, I've got so much more to talk to you about, though. Likewise. Is there anything you want to promote before we uh, wrap this up? Just stay tuned to Wrong Think. Um, this space will keep evolving and changing and having exciting conversations with really dope people. And this is one of my favorites so far. Awesome. Cool. Cool. Thank you. That was cool. That was fun. Yeah, that really did fly by.